episode of Canada FM, the show that profiles Canadian bands that never really made it big anywhere else besides Canada. I'm Ted, and I'm with... I'm Brian. Dynamite intro there, Brian. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we're going to be uh, the hosts for this journey through uh, uh, Canadian favorites that the rest of the world doesn't know. And, uh, oh, Brian, excited about this week's episode. <laughs> Not only this is our first episode, but because we're covering Econoline Crush. And as we'll find out as we go through the journey with Econoline Crush, they came oh so close. Oh so close to actually breaking out of the Canadian bubble. Well, I, I wanted to ask what made you want to do of all the Canadian bands, like not only like one hit wonders or whatever, like even some of our favorites growing up, what made you want to do a Conaline crush? Uh, the reason I wanted to do a Conaline crush was because there was a moment in time. If you remember the devil, you know, and we'll get to this later. Yeah. Uh, they were putting out singles for that for like two years. Yeah. That just kept churning out hits. The reason why, and here in Canada, uh, it just stayed, it just kept going in Canada. But in the States, they got it a year after we did. That's when it got its official American release. So the Canadian, like much music and all that, they need Canadian content. They want, if it's going to be big in the States, they want it big here. So they just kept playing those songs. Right. So it was on the charts forever, but they just... <sighs> They just missed their window. Well, the other the other thing too is like I've I've said this to people who are younger than me, and we've we've said this before, that we really hit a golden era of music, at least in this country, because the the CanCon rules got stiffer, right? So the the radio stations needed more content. It just I don't know. There didn't seem to be such a divide. This is very inside baseball for people, but you know this, we love the CFL, Ty Cash being both from Hamilton. There was a period back in the '60s where like. Like the NFL wasn't the Titan that it is now where the CFL and the NFL were on the same level. And um, obviously like our industry is nothing like theirs, but it just, we had this glory age where people are making money, getting uh, signed to major labels, not just like slugging it out on the indies and like Canadian records uh, labels were gobbling up everyone. And one of those was yeah. Connell and Crush. And especially Canadian rock too, yeah, because that was almost its own genre in the late nineties. Yeah. And Connell and Crush were a proud member of that fraternity and uh yeah i think we're about to get into some history here you ready? ready all right so i can't find concrete evidence as to where and when exactly Econoline Crush started because there's a few different things, but the details are minor that the, the differences are. But it involved Tom Ferris, formerly of the Vancouver Electronic Act Moev, posting an article in a Seattle newspaper asking for someone to help with uh, some singing work. The person who answered that ad was Trevor Hurst. And after spending some time in the States, uh, that's where the band started actually in Seattle, and they were right in on that grunge scene. Uh, they moved to British Columbia. And that's when they started recording demos. So the history of the first Canadian we band that we're covering actually starts in the States. <laughs> I thought uh, Trevor Hurst was American. Like it's kind of like a big wreck situation where he uh, was American, met a bunch of Canadians and, and worked it there. But maybe I'm wrong. No, no. He's actually born in Manitoba. Oh, poor best. And has big ties to Manitoba. But the band started in Seattle. So nope. weird. Weird how that one worked. Uh, Hurst Ferris and the other founding members of the band, Chris Myers, uh, they recruited guitar players Robbie Morfitt and Hack, uh, no last name given, uh, <laughs> bassist Danny Yaramoko, uh, sorry, Yaremko, and drummer Greg Leesk, and they called themselves Econoline Crush. The name 
comes from the Econoline van her parents used to drive when he was a kid. That's where he first got into music, was driving around in that big-ass Econoline van. So Econoline yeah, Crush is where that came from. Yeah, I think because originally they were just going to be called Crush, and then Trevor Hurst was yammering on about some story about the Econoline van. They're like, let's merge it. It sounds good. Yeah. It sounds good. I didn't know what an Econoline was when I first heard of this band, but it sounds cool. Yeah. That's a good name for a band. Also, I mentioned a whole bunch of members there. Uh, I should also note that Myers uh, and uh, the other uh, Ferris left the band in 93 just as they were signing their first deal with EMI Music Canada. The, Trevor Hurst is the only constant in this band. Oh, yeah. So I'm not going to be breaking down He's the only one numbers. I would know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is going to be one of the things where I'm breaking down guys as they come <laughs> and as they go. It will just be wasting a lot of breath. Yeah. Now, let's talk about influences. How actually, first of all, you've listened to a lot of Econoline Crush over the next couple of days. How would you describe their sound before I get into their influences? Um, it's like the right after Cobain died and the, all that like post grunge fallout where it's like you can hear the heavy influences, um, but it's it wasn't the same because like a lot of those grunge bands like Pearl Jam and Nirvana weren't influenced by like heavy stuff. They were influenced by like punk rock yeah. and they just put like a heavier distortion on it, slowed it down a little bit. Whereas like these guys are clearly on that wave of like, you know, Deftones, all that like slow, like Alice in Chains, all that slower drawn out kind of stuff yeah because you can hear that in some of it but then you can hear like kind of up-tempo kind of uh like 80s like the metal like the uh, the ozzy and the alice cooper and stuff like that you can kind of hear tinges of that in my opinion maybe i'm just my ears are off but do you hear the industrial Oh, 100 percent. Like there's yeah. like when I first put on like one of the singles, uh, the I think it was that first EP or no, it was the first the debut album. I might as well have just heard like Head Like a Hole by Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. Well, you nailed the influences. Uh, Seattle grunge and metal, big influences. It goes kind of from different genres. Uh, there's a period of like the heavy stuff like ACDC and that in there. Yeah. Then I'm I'm a fan of the psychedelic furs, Killing Joke. Uh, U2, of course. Oh, yeah. In Excess. Um, let me think of some other Woo! stuff. Billy Idol. Woo! This is why first cousins shouldn't get married. That's right. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I also saw an interview with him where he gave his Desert Island albums. And he said uh, Soundgarden, uh, anything by Soundgarden. He also said Protection by Massive Attack. Oh. And uh, October by U2. Weird U2 album to pick. But. So uh, after they signed with EMI, uh, they put out their first EP, Purge, which I know you listen to. Uh, and it got pretty good success right off the bat. It's only single, TDM, uh, received airplay on Much Music. And uh, they even got a Juno nomination that year for Best Hard Rock Album. <laughs> Even though it only has six tracks, two of them are like the same track, but it's part one, part two. (laughs) That got a Hard Rock Album of the Year nomination, but it lost to Monster Voodoo Machine and their album Suffer System. Now that one I don't know. Yeah, I I know Econoline and Crush, but I never heard of this other band. (laughs) Uh, You listened to the EP, what'd you think? Uh, I and this isn't a knock against them. I just hate it in general when bands do these like dopey kind of like slow intros that just offer nothing, where they're just kind of like trying to set some weird ambiance. 
Yeah. Uh, they did that on the intro and the outro, but right after that, it kicked right in, and I loved it, actually. I was quite surprised. Yeah, the the single TDM, that's really the only one I heard off of this one. I kind of got right into uh, Affliction. I kind of skipped over the EP, but TDM is a, that is an industrial song, yeah. and not a song that you think would be played on much music very often, because it's filled with cursing. Uh, and they kind of dropped the cursing later in later yeah. albums. <laughs> Well, there was one song, I think it was on the first album, that self-titled one, where it's it's, a, it's one of the last tracks where he's talking about some, like, religious thing. He's talking about, like, fucking a nun. And then, like, so, it's, yeah, it was, it was very, I was like, this is weird, because none of the album is like that. And then all of a sudden, at the end, he just gets very aggressive. <laughs> um the other thing I was going to say about that, we keep referring to a self-titled album. Do you mean their 96 album, Affliction, the one right before uh, The Devil You Know? Because I don't have a self-titled. They didn't put out a self-titled. At least no, the, sorry. Like, I, when I, when I, I meant like the first, like the debut album album, because I know we're talking about okay. the EP, but sorry, I was skipping over to the main first album. Oh, okay, yeah. That one's called Affliction, and we're about to get to that one. Okay. So they put out, uh, what's it called? Purge does pretty good. People know who they are. The Juno voters like them. They released their first full-length album in 1996 called Affliction. It maintained the driving hard rock and synth elements they became known for on Purge, but also had some of the more melodic, sing- melodic singing from Hearst uh, that the band would embrace in later releases. Uh, this kind of was the step from industrial to what I like to call accessible industrial let's face it industrial rock is not for everyone no it's for literally just like because ted and i were both born in 85 we grew up we were in high school in the early 2000s and all those kids like that were into that type of rock wore like pants that were like nine sizes too big that looked like they should be at a rave and just like where it's just like the same like hard driving beat over and over again yeah uh, like, another another title i wanted to call it because you mentioned that hard driving beat what do you think is video game rock yeah i could see that yeah because there's a little bit of there you feel like you're playing Gran Turismo or something like that yeah. well these guys got into the video games so I'll get to that in, uh, in just a minute Affliction produced three singles Nowhere Now 21 Miles to Go Deep Grinding Gold Copy And Close All You My Enemy But none of those songs really did much to further the band's popularity. The album did, however, receive a small American release courtesy of Network Records and led the band to tour extensively across Canada, as well as three tours of Europe where they paired up with their industrial rock brethren, Young Gods, De Krups, and Walteri. And if I pronounce that wrong for any of you European industrial fans who are listening, I apologize. Uh, they also hooked up with Filter, which seems like a good band for them to – seems like a good match. Yeah. Uh, but they Was that around themselves. the time that Filter put out Hey Man, Nice Shot? I believe so. They really – that's, that's a good yin and yang right there, uh, Conway yeah. Crush and Filter. Uh, so, yeah, they marketed themselves to a specific audience in those days. And I also made a note that uh, the song Emotional Stain off of Affliction is an awesome track. I really like that song. 
Yeah, the when I was listening to it, the, my biggest takeaways were obviously like Trevor Hurst can actually sing because yeah. you can actually hear him like throughout the course of all their albums. Like he really starts to develop his voice really well. The musically, it's nothing just it's nothing reinventing the wheel in terms of because, you know, like a lot of that industrial music, they rely on the distortion and stuff. And it kind of like it's almost like a crutch if you're just like a modest guitar player. For all I know, yeah. those guys can be great. It just it's buried in the like the very simple sounds if that like i don't want to sound like some films or uh, music snob like i'm above industrial right but uh uh it's just it's very like if i was driving in a car i'd just be like bobbing my head the whole time it's music to be played live where everyone can just go like nuts and headbang that's what it's meant for and it's it, it works they got funky a little bit on there though which i appreciated yeah. like they kind of broke out of that bubble and almost did a funky jam bandy kind of thing there was some organ in there and uh, i really liked emotional stain that was a good song all right well in 96 so affliction really really kind of helped them set the tone for the rest of their career because they signed with bruce allen talent agency who represents canadian superstars like ann murray brian adams and bachman turner overdrive which uh I wouldn't pair Econoline Crush up with any of those three, but uh, a duet between Econoline Crush and Anne Murray, why not? I'm just picturing them playing, like, getting all, like, satan out and, like, playing this stuff. She's just sitting in a corner crying, just like, what's going on? (laughs) I think Anne Murray can hold her own with those guys. I don't think she's fragile. (laughs) You don't last that long in music, even if you're making a lot of crap. No, I'm just kidding. By being scared by you know, metal bands. They also met uh, legendary producer Bob Rock. Uh, oh, sorry. Through the Bruce Allen talent agency, they got to meet Bob Rock, who had produced one of their later albums. Bob Rock is a music legend. We'll get into him later on. Uh, now, this guy, Bruce Allen, a little fun trivia on him. He sang backup on the Brian Adams track, Cuts Like a Knife. And the Canadian supergroup Northern Lights, who did the song Tears Are Not Enough, which for you Americans listening is Canada's answer to We Are the World. That was his idea. That was all him. So doors were opening for the band. They found their way to producer Sylvia Massey, who was red hot at the time. She was really known for her work with Prince, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Tool. And setting an industrial influence band like Econoline Crush up with the producer of Tool... That's a good, uh, that's That's another good match. Yeah, exactly. So they're really finding a good groove and meeting the right people right now. This is well thought out. The result of that partnership was 1997's The Devil You Know, and nothing would be the same. Before I break down The Devil You Know, I think this is when the band exploded and everyone got to know them. Uh, What was your experience with that? Because I think you and me are both the same. Neither of us had the album, but both of our brothers had the album. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, my brother's older, Ted's brother is younger but for some reason like my i think both of our brothers have a like obviously some differences but there's a lot of overlap between steve and alex's music taste because they both love rage uh i know your brother loves seven dust my brother loved corn because i think i don't know if i got him into corn if he got me into corn but those are the few bands my brother and i agreed on was rage corn papa roach and he he got me uh, he bought devil you know and lent it to me a few times and i loved it yeah yeah it was great uh, that's the group's signature album. Over the course of three years, it produced the singles Home. Sparkle and Shine. Sparkle and Shine. Sparkle and 
surefire. And all that you are. It got off to a rocky start. Um, they were select- selected to open for KISS on KISS's 1997 reunion tour. But her says him and the band were incredibly disheartened when at a sold-out show in Edmonton, fans began chanting, we want KISS only a few songs into their set. Aye. That's a kick in the balls right there. I mean, it's it's every opener has to go through that. Yeah, but still, you know, you're getting all the success. You're playing the Junos. You're in Canada. Like, if they did that and say Texas, different story. That makes sense. You know what I mean? But you figured the fans in Edmonton would be a little bit more excited to see Conline Crunch. Yeah, but I guess if they're KISS fans, they're probably these, like, aging, like, Gen Xers or, like, boomers. They're just like, I was there back in the 70s. I want KISS. We don't have this new crap. Well, I'll tell you, they did end up leaving an impression on KISS. And we'll get to that in a second, because there's kind of some cool stories that come with that. Uh, But things got better after that concert in Edmonton. They were invited to play on the second stage at Edge Fest 1997. That was the first year the annual show at Molson Park in Barrie toured across Canada. And things got even bigger in 98 when they were promoted to the main stage at Edge Fest. And they got to share the stage with Sloan, the Tea Party, as well as alternative rock legends Green Day and the Foo Fighters. I should also mention that Creed was at Edge Fest 98, but played the second stage. Yes, Not <laughs> Like Crush was billed higher than Creed. Brian, what are your memories of that humongous Edge Fest 98 lineup? Because in Canada, that was like Woodstock touring. Yeah, I remember we, I think we wanted to ask if we can go, and we're like, no, you're too young. And we're just, I was at least, you were, you were a couple of heads, years ahead of me for getting into music, but I was just starting to learn about these bands, and just starting to kind of learn what was cool. Yeah, yeah. although I think even even back then, we neither of us liked Creed, so. <laughs> I don't know how often we'll get to talk about Creed on the show, but I don't know if we did or not. Uh, I remember watching one of the Much Music specials at uh, Edgefest and just like writing down the names of every band that they were showing and then like trying to get the songs to make my own compilation tape. Yeah. For the concert. Yeah, it was it was a cool thing. Uh, but like I said, that impre- uh, that impression they made on Kiss when they got booed, eh, it was a good impression. Kiss liked them. Uh, they invited them to tour with them again in 1998. And uh, Kiss's management liked Trevor Hurst so much that what they would do was when they would play arena shows, like at Madison Square Garden, for example, the Kiss management would go to uh, MSG's ownership and ask them for like a New York Rangers jersey. Okay, so what the Conlon Crush's gig was was they play two songs and then they play home. And during that end weird solo bit that you're talking about in home, yeah. Trevor Hurst would go behind an amplifier. The lights are all on the guitar player. He put on the Rangers jersey, and then when the song ended, he would walk Jesus pose right in the middle of the stage. The spotlight would hit him in the Rangers jersey, and the whole crowd would go, Rangers, Rangers, Rangers. (laughs) And they started doing that gimmick because Kiss had the access to get them the jerseys. Right. And that became a big thing. So they weren't getting booed anymore because they were sucking up to the home crowd. Classic pandering. A bunch of wieners. (laughs) You don't like that? 
No, it's 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 a very American. Actually, can, who am I kidding? I I like to throw this Canadian superiority around. Canadians be like, if the American band threw on like, I mean, hell, a couple of years ago we went nuts when uh, Ric Flair was rocking a tie cat jersey. So yeah, exactly. I was so happy about that. So who am I kidding? I'm no so, better. Also, another story. Uh, Trevor Hurst, a huge hockey guy. Guess what his team is? Uh, probably not the Canucks because it seems like that'd be too obvious. Yeah, it'd be too obvious. Yeah. Uh, was he like one of those B teams? like the Manitoba Moose or something? No, no, it's an NHL team. It's an NHL okay. team. Uh, maybe, I guess maybe the Rangers because Kiss is from New York? Yeah, close. Islanders? No. Devils? No. I give up. Just tell me. Go about two hours up the turnpike to Philadelphia. That's going to be my next guess. Son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah. He's a huge Flyer fan. Reason being, Bobby Clark and Reggie Leach were both from northern Manitoba. And so oh, back yeah. in those days, he liked them because they were kind of local guys and the Broad Street Bullies were big. So he followed them and uh, he tell, told a story about playing, I guess, I don't know if it was the Spectrum or where it was in Philly. They're backstage and he recognized the trainer uh, for the Philadelphia Flyers who was backstage. I think he was the equipment guy. Sorry, not the trainer. And uh, he pointed to one of the guys in the band. He goes, that's so-and-so. He, he was, you know, he was with the Flyers back in the day. So I guess he's a big, tough guy. Didn't take any shit. So he walks over to Trevor Hurst and he goes, why are you pointing at? Me. He goes, no, we we're just having a conversation. Why the fuck were you pointing? He got all mad at him. And he goes, I, I point out that you were, you know, the equipment guy for the Philadelphia Flyers. He goes, you fly a fan? The guy's like, Trevor's like, yeah. So the guy doesn't tell him where he's taking him. He goes, come with me. He ends up taking him to the locker room. Gives him a whole bunch of sticks and pucks and an That's Eric cool. Lindros jersey. Not too shabby. Look, get so jealous of these guys. You know what I mean? Well, it's one of those things. Extra access, these rock stars. Well, it's not just that. Like I've like we've talked about like comedy a lot, and one of my biggest pet peeves. I want to go on a big purge of all these comedians on Instagram because all these people who are successful, who have tons of money, they get sent all this free crap, and like half of their Instagram videos are just them unboxing. Oh, look at these freaking free steak knives I got! It's like fuck you, unfollow. Hey, so here's the goal: us doing this podcast. It becomes so (laughs) successful that people send us free shit in the mail that we don't need. Sound good? That's good. There we go. Uh, a couple other bands that they toured with in 98 for uh, The Devil You Know were Stabbing Westward and God Lives Underwater, uh, both electro-industrial bands. Again, good match. Uh, the band's next album was Brand New History, which was produced by DJ Swamp, who had worked with Beck previously, and of course the legendary Bob Rock, and uh, Trevor Hurst says Bob Rock, uh, one of his biggest influences, uh, it started when he he started getting a little bit more relaxed about music, because Bob Rock told him that uh, doesn't matter what the song does, you can't control that. The fun is this part, the recording, the producing. That's where you get to have fun. And of course, if you don't know the name Bob Rock, he has produced everyone from Metallica to Michael Bublé to 311, and I wrote Q positive reaction to 311 to combat some 311 haters out there in the world. Go for it, Brian. I don't understand why people hate 311. They just have so much fun, and they just have a natural enjoyment of life, and their music is so upbeat. Like, one of the most fun shows that we went to, I put, I still put that, 311 and Slightly Stupid, in, like, my top five favorite shows. When we left, my eardrums were so blown out, we went back to the bar to meet our friends, I could not hear shit. We had a great time at that show. Yeah. Yes. So if you're looking for a couple of 311 haters, not us, go listen (laughs) to some other podcasts where they'll drop in, they'll shoehorn in a 311 dig in every episode. (laughs) Anyway... 
Uh, um, let me just quickly, I want to cycle back to the devil, you know, because we oh, yeah. focus mainly on the singles, but um, there was one track for the life, because I only went through a quick deep dive for like one or two listens, so I don't remember all the track names, but there was one. It very well could have sounded like Godsmack's Voodoo. It had this very kind of like yes, another uh, one you're talking about. Build. And so I was thinking, I'm like, if and I know you'll get to the like the how they never made that splash in the states. Like they should have easily toured with people like Godsmack. They could have been on the Family Values tour. Like they could have easily been if they were an American band. They could have been a contemporary of Godsmack and some of those guys. I wish uh, get ready. Brian, because Godsmack plays an important part in the history of the Conaline Crush. Really? And actually, believe it or not, yeah, we're about to come up to it. Uh, it, uh, it you'll find out through that what kind of slowed down the Conaline Crush train. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Um, well, I think that another part of that is because it had the two releases a year apart in Canada and the U.S., I think people are just kind of getting tired of them in Canada. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, everyone had this album. Nobody cared if a new single was coming off off of it. You know, you've already been listening to it for, for two years. You're moving on to other stuff. Yeah. So I think that they had just gotten ah, maybe overexposed. But I don't even think they were overexposed. I just think it maybe it was just too much of a good thing. Yeah, I can see that. Like, I mean, yeah. um, that happens in this country. Like, there's certain – like, uh, that first R. Kells album got milked way too much. Oh, like, yeah. And yeah. Uh, there was, like – a. I think it was around a three to four year gap between that self-titled album and Michigan Left. So that one got milked plenty. That's why like, I love the old Arkell stuff, but I never listened to that album because it was just like so overexposed. It was always, always on the charts. And you look at like uh, Brand New History, it only had two singles. Yeah. You know, The Devil You Know had four. Yeah. And all got pretty, pretty big play in Canada, at least. Um, getting back to brand new history uh this album does pretty much abandon all of the industrial influences was the there's best. no industrial on this much more mainstream rock approach there's a pop elements in it um they're trying to go into the new metal. Me? they're trying to tap into that new metal because this is 2001 so like limp biscuit yeah lincoln park all these bands like there's turntables in this fucking album there is now at least trevor hurst did try rapping because oh, that would have been just kind of embarrassing uh but you have to do that. Yeah, like I know when we were younger, we'd call bands who would kind of adapt with the trends, um, sellouts and stuff like that. We were huge with that. Ah, like what I tell you, sold out. This band sold out. That band sold out. You know what I mean? Yeah. To sell your albums, you, it's a tough balance trying to please your fan base while trying to adapt and bring in new fans. It's really hard to do that. And well, I think that's what that. they're trying to do here. Like if you compare them to seven, eight years prior when they were riding that like crest of like the post grunts where like there people would just be like, oh, what is this? You're stagnant. If I wanted to listen to like Deftones, I'd listen to the Deftones or Alice in yeah. Chains. Like I don't want this crap. So like people, it's almost like a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. You're right. You're absolutely right. Um, and if you look at those two bands by 2001, the Deftones totally changed their sound. Yeah. They were a lot more metal. Chino was singing a lot more instead of screaming. And Alice in Chains wasn't making music. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of the situation you get in when the landscape changes. So Econoline Crush tried to pivot here. The album only got mixed reviews from critics. It was seen as a step backwards for many. But they did something very, very cool on this album. The album's first single 
was released in December of 1999, almost a year and a half before the actual release of Brand New History. And the reason they released it so early was because this was going to be the lead single to the compilation album Big Shiny Tunes 4. Now, Brian, why don't you walk through some of our international listeners how important (laughs) Big Shiny Tunes albums are to us Canadians. Uh, Well, Big Shiny Tunes and also Much Dance uh, were basically the premier compilations from like the late 90s to the early 2000s. Basically, anything popular at that time like the biggest hits uh it's basically just like if you want to get into music this is what you you do and like there's i'm pretty sure off a bunch of those albums i would already i went off and like bought the individual albums from the bands yeah yeah because uh they were so good and this was just like your springboard your music your intro course and uh it's every christmas i got at least i think i got three and four for christmas and i bought two on my own and then somewhere down the line i got one but you you kind of looked at the big shiny tunes at here's the best of rock yeah. of that year and uh, yeah it was something to look forward to and just what tracks were going to be on it it was always a big guessing game and I remember the advertisement came out for it it said a Conline Crush I was like well that's weird they didn't put anything out this year not realizing that they were making this song specifically for that album and uh, You Don't Know What It's Like is a great song put that out, out of their singles entirely that's my favorite one well not only that because it's got like a it takes you on a bit of a ride it's a slower yeah. song it's not like a home it's not like a driving beat but it's like it starts off in this kind of like weird slow down and then it gets heavy and but it's got a very infectious chorus and it's uh it's the only song on that brand new history album that feels a conaline crushy probably because yeah. it, was made, it was made shortly after the devil you know so it's still they were still in that space whereas like they put their, that to bed and then they went off and like let's go fiddle around with freaking dj lethal over here whatever the fuck his name was dj swamp whatever he worked with beck well that's <laughs> uh you don't know what it's like was a hit and you gotta yeah. remember they didn't have any album to grade but this was a hit uh reached number 13 on canadian rock charts 29 in the states which isn't too bad on yeah. their rock charts and uh, the only other single from brand new history was make it right which is another song i like i think that's a good too put that out, out of their singles entirely that's my favorite one well not only that because it's got like a it takes you on a bit of a ride it's a slower yeah. song it's not like a home it's not like a driving beat but it's like it starts off in this kind of like weird slow down and then it gets heavy and but it's got a very infectious chorus and it's uh it's the only song on that brand new history album that feels a conaline crushy probably because yeah. it's made it was made shortly after the devil you know so it's still they were still in that space whereas like they put their, that to bed and then they went off and like let's go fiddle around with freaking dj lethal over here whatever the fuck his name was dj swamp whatever he worked with beck well, that's <laughs> uh you don't know what it's like was a hit 
And you got to remember, they didn't have any album to grade, but this was a hit. Uh, Reached number 13 on Canadian rock charts, 29 in the States, which isn't too bad on their rock charts. And uh, the only other single from Brand New History was Make It Right, which is another song I like. I think that's a good tune. Yeah, like that was the thing. It had some good songs. It just overall, it just it's one of those things like there's albums I'll buy from a band and I'll listen to it. I'm like, I don't hate this album. It has it's listenable. It has some replay appeal. It just doesn't feel like an album from that band. That's all it is. Yeah. So that's right. why you know, it's not one you. I, I bet. I don't know who the Econoline Crush loyalists out there are, but I'm sure they don't go clamoring like, I'm jonesing to listen to brand new history today. They don't go running back to it. Whereas, like, you can put on the devil you know over and over again, and it's fantastic. It's a good point. Uh, well, that's what happens when you have a smash hit. The expectations are so high for that follow up yeah. that if you do make a change in your sound like they did right away, you're right. That diehard fan base, it just it's got no, no appetite for it. Yeah. And, uh, you wanted to know when Godsmack came into the story. I did. Well, here we go. And by the way, I don't know how you pulled that out of your ass, the Godsmack thing. It's just something in my ears. It just it, it just <laughs> struck me as very voodoo-esque, and I love that song. It's like That's that and alone are two of my favorite Godsmack songs. But So basically, in like 2001, uh, Godsmack was doing a cross-country tour of Canada, and they decided they wanted to get a couple of big names in Canada to be their opening act. So they chose Econoline Crush and they chose Cardinal Official to open for them. Yeah. Now, of course, Cardinal Official is a hip hop artist um, in Canada and very loved up here. We might do an episode on him one day, although he did have a massive hit in the States. So I don't know if he kind of fits into our box, but we might get there. Um, Was it Let's Ride? No, Dangerous. Oh. No, Shock Lair did last uh, Let's Ride. Oh, that's right. We'll do a Shock Lair episode. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you hear yeah, the song Dangerous. That girl is so dangerous. That girl is a bad girl. Acon that's Cardinal. Singer. I thought that was Acon. It's Cardinal song. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. sorry. And he had, the Cardi slang was the Cardinal song that I was thinking of. The other big hit. Yeah, yeah. That didn't get as big as Dangerous did. And then there was also uh, the one. He's got one that he, he samples. Uh, uh, I think it's called Number One. He samples Tide is High by Blonde. That was a huge okay. state, hit. State. He's actually playing on an episode of The Office, and he does. Really? The split, and he's dancing to it. He does the splits. And he tears his scrotum. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, you got a show, and the main headliner is Godsmack. Connelline Crush goes on, and. Cardinal Official opens. It's a Godsmack crowd. How do you think this is going to go for the opening acts? I mean, I could see them being pissed off at Cardinal, and then by the time Connelline Crush comes on the stage, they're taking all their frustration out from Cardinal out on a Connelline Crush. I don't know if that was their rationale, but both were booed mercilessly by the crowds on every date because they just wanted to see some metal. And a Connelline Crush wasn't really doing the metal thing anymore. Yeah. So they took seven years off. They just weren't a band for seven years. Uh, They played some sporadic gigs in 2006. They even did a couple of tours with Hinder from Oklahoma. You know them? Lips of an angel! (laughs) Hinder's in the Oklahoma Music Hall of Fame, if you can believe that. Well, I'm sure, like, I mean, if you're from Oklahoma and you have any sort of mainstream success, they're like, you're in. (laughs) Basically, well, like, it's mainly country artists. I think they were pretty starved for a, uh, a rock act to get in. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but Trevor put a new lineup together in 2008, and they released their comeback album, Ignite. And I'm not going to lie, Brian. I don't have any memory of this album. <laughs> 
but also by 2008, so we would have been 23. Uh, our musical tastes have like we had both kind of moved on. Like we were living with roommates in college at the time who were like all into jam bands and like yeah. we kind of dug dug deep back into classic rock. Uh, the more contemporary stuff, like and then you guys all ripped on me for being some hipster because I was going into more like indie rock uh, as well. So like while keeping our punk and ska stuff going. So like I mean yeah. that that just whole section of my life just kind of I like just didn't get into any of that stuff. But for this album, they uh, reunited with Sylvia Massey, who did The Devil You Know. So that sounds right there on paper like, okay, uh, a lot of bands say we're, we're going back to our roots, but this sounds like they actually were because they had the producer of their most successful album. Right. Didn't really get that vibe. There was <laughs> much more industrial influence on this album than there was on Brand New Day, uh, but it was very Velvet Revolver Buck Cherry-esque. I, I wrote. It's very leather pants, Motley Crue talking about hot chicks. That's the vibe I got. <laughs> so. Yeah, bitch. <laughs> I had two uh, singles, Dirty. And Get Out of the Way. And those were the ones, that was the weird things. Those were the ones that really had that Buck Cherry vibe to it, while the rest of the album kind of felt a little more Econoline Crush. So it sounds like they did a couple of tracks to play up what was big on rock radio at that time, hmm. while keeping the rest of the album for fans. That's an interesting strategy. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, like a lot of bands do it, like they have the bait and switch approach, where it's like they'll put out something, one or two singles that just like gets, gets you the hooks in, because this is also a period where iTunes was starting to come up, or not iTunes, like uh, Apple Music and mm-hmm. Spotify, I think, was just starting to come up, maybe, if 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 there was even a thing. Yeah. So, like, you can't just, like, sample everything. You, you still kind of, people still bought CDs back then. Yeah. So, you, the, they had the hooks in. It's like when you bought, got hoodwinked by bar, uh, buying Harvey Danger. You know, I, I think, as an adult... I might appreciate it more. But you're looking at a lead singer who looked exactly like Stephen Page from Bare Naked Ladies with goofy <laughs> lyrics. I thought there were going to be a bunch of goofballs. It turns out they're incredibly serious, like, indie rock guys. You know what I mean? Probably influenced <laughs> to a by lot of pavement and guided by voices and bands like that that I was just too young to fathom. Yeah. So I just think it, it wasn't the right album. Where have all the Merrymakers gone for a kid who was, what, 13, 14? Yeah. Yeah, I just wasn't ready for that. <laughs> I was ready for Flag Pulse. I was not ready for the rest of the album. <laughs> Getting back to the uh, the Buck Cherry esque singles off of Ignite, uh, Dirty actually reached 13 on the Canadian rock charts. It did pretty good. Um, Get Out of the Way kind of floundered chart wise. It only hit number 41, but the Edmonton Oilers used that song as their goal song during the 2009 2010 season. Well, that's cool. Yeah, you got your uh, computer in front of you. There? Yeah. How did the Oilers do that season? Because they dropped it immediately. <laughs> that maybe they weren't that good. It was the 2009 season, 2010. 2010 season, yeah. Okay, let me uh, take a look here. Let's see. So the <laughs> how did they do? They were 27, 47, and eight. Oh God! <laughs> Twenty games below 500. <laughs> I take it they did not make the playoffs. 
no. Let's see. They last? Uh, they were, well, yeah, they were last in the Northwest Division uh, and last in the conference. Wow. No wonder they dropped the song. This is bad luck song for hockey teams. <laughs> I hate to say this, but Econoline Crush brought great shame to the city of Edmonton. <laughs> so, hey, they got a dirty Flyers fan to do their gold song. <laughs> they should have got an Oilers fan to do it. I don't anyway. know. Unless Kevin Smith starts writing music, I don't know many uh, Edmonton Oilers fans. I thought he was a New Jersey Devil fan. No, he, he likes them because he's from Jersey, but out in, uh, because of Wayne Gretzky, he has his heart on for the Oilers. Oh, okay. Well, maybe look at Jason Mewes to write a rap song or something like that. <laughs> All right. Uh, Brian, do you know the phrase butt rock? Butt rock? Have you ever heard butt rock before? No. Butt rock is uh, a derogatory term used for a group of bands, but it's a uh, what gets heavy airplay on radio stations that uh, play just rock? You know what I mean? We play nothing but rock. That's where the phrase comes from. <laughs> so listen to this line of bands, butt rock bands that Econoline Crush toured with to promote uh, the Ignite album. Three Days Grace, Seether, Hinder Again, Three Doors Down, and Stained. <laughs> That is some butt rock, considering Aaron Lewis from Stained was about two years away from getting into country music and leaving <laughs> rock and roll altogether. Uh, it's, uh, you know, hey, I'm not taking anything away from those bands. There's nothing wrong with being a butt rock band. But it was basically, they were like, yeah, we're older. The same people who listen to us listen to these guys. Let's just embrace it. And yeah. you know what? There's nothing wrong with being self-aware. Oh, yeah. That's the the worst point. thing you can do is have your head up your ass and just like thinking you're like above it, like tiptoeing through the raindrops. And uh, you think you're above everything and just like, no, you got to come down to earth and like play within your wheelhouse. Yeah, exactly. And it almost feels like Kiss reunites every time Econoline Crush puts out an album because <laughs> they got to play with them again to promote um, uh, um, Ignite. Uh, actually, it was a bunch of shows in the Maritimes that they did with Kiss. Uh-huh. And uh, they toured a couple dates with Alice Cooper as well. So they got to get on the Legends circuit, which isn't so bad. Uh, cool. And speaking of Legends, what do Legends do when they've given so much and they don't have much else to give? They put out a... Greatest Hits. A Greatest Hits album. They did that in 2010, and then they put out the People Have Spoken EP in 2011. Did you get to listen to this one? I was about to, but then I was, like, futzing around with my computer, and I got sidetracked, and I was just like, eh, I'll listen to it later. But I was still going through Ignite, uh, and I, I didn't get to that one either. Uh, now, here's where things get kind of kind of cool. Uh, Trevor Hurst, who does seem like a really cool guy and a really down-to-earth guy if you ever get to see an interview with him, um, he's been very open about his battle with addiction and his eventual recovery from addiction. So when the band was off uh, for that seven-year stretch, he decided that he wanted to do something good in the world. So he went to the University of Manitoba and he got a degree in nursing. And for three years, worked as the community nurse. And I, I don't have the name of the First Nation, but it was a tiny, remote, indigenous community. And he oh, spent wow. three years there as the community nurse. And uh, they've actually uh, filmed a documentary about that whole process, him getting his degree, him going up to the First Nation community, and, of course, a whole bunch of shots of Econoline Crush playing and him still doing the rock and roll thing at the same time. But uh, – That's amazing that he found time for being a Juno-nominated artist, touring three times with Kiss, and now he's sitting there giving free health care to people in a a remote community. That's phenomenal. Well, do you know what happened this season for the NFL? 
So the, the Kansas City Chiefs have a guy yes. Yes. Uh, from Montreal yes. who took the season off to help with, like, uh, I don't know if he's working in KC or if he's working in Montreal where he's from, but he's helping people who might have been impacted with COVID-19 or just, uh, like, for overloaded e- uh, ICUs and things like that. He's just helping out because he's put his – he's some, a doctor. Some people uh, – have big uh, the, the hearts are so big you know they just want to give back and trevor hurst is definitely one of those guys so uh if you ever get to catch an interview with him uh he does seem like a guy who's good to his fans too so if you ever see him on the street hey man he'll talk to you and that's it oh and they released a new album this year called when the devil drives produced two singles that didn't chart did you get to listen to it well i heard like one single i forget what it was called it was uh it looked like it was just like uh, the picture on my spotify was like a covid it looked like because it had a mask on it, like the yeah, so it looked yeah. like it was like a COVID signal. It was pretty good. It's, it's, it felt a little more of like a return to form for them. They they ditched the turntables and uh, it, was, it was a catchier <laughs> song, so it was it was good. All right, final thoughts here. Kind of like Crush Pride. There weren't many bands, at least from my memory, of that style of rock in Canada during that time. When you look at some of the contemporary, like the the Treble Chargers, the Our Lady Pieces, the like, no one. They were more just straight up alternative. Whereas like the no one incorporated the industrial, the heavier stuff like them. So I guess it was easier for them to try to forge a different path and kind of make these American connections. So I guess it was good in that sense. Whereas like some of these other alternative bands could just get lost in the shuffle. They're like, oh, great, you sound like everybody else. So it's good that they went with that route. The big question is, you know, they had all these connections with Kiss. Uh, they they did see some moderate success in the States. Why don't you think that there was more success? You know, you see these bands that I just listed off that are, you know, not even close to being as good as Econoline Crush, you know, Hinder, Stained, <laughs> Three Days Grace, who are Canadian. Yeah. Why do you think that they were so successful? and the Conline Crush just they got lost in the shuffle um, I think part of it is the they the adapting music scene, right? Like when yeah. you start off sounding like something in the mid '90s, and then like we're no longer in the mid '90s, and then so like you try to you kind of have identity crisis where like what do we do? And you try to adapt with the the new metal scene, and you just like you're not up to snuff, you know what I mean? And uh, so it's easy to get lost there. Plus, I mean, if you're trying to make it big in the states, like you got to really stand out differently. Because there's so many friggin' bands and uh, only so finite amount of like ear holes to listen to, so mm-hmm. in time. So, and I guess maybe they just didn't stand out enough. I almost feel like they missed their window. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the window was there, and they were making music that was like I, like we said, it's industrial, but it's accessible industrial where yeah. anyone, no one's gonna be scared off by it. But you get the vibe of what industrial is. I feel like they just missed it because had they not gotten that record deal in the states and not had that extra year on the charts in canada you know what i mean i feel like had they just said hey we'll put out another record for you in two years or just let us get in the studio we'll cut our touring short i think that that would have been beneficial to them but putting it out and then it elongates their exposure up here and people get sick of them (laughs) i think that's what it was i think they're just victims of happenstance and uh, i think they're a great band and i'm glad they're still making music and trevor hurst seems like a really good wonderful person 
person. So I'm glad he's finding success. I mean, the other thing, too, (laughs) whenever you have like relics of the alt rock 90s, where it's like you always feel almost like, I mean, you don't know them, so you don't owe them any sort of like concern. But sometimes you always feel like some of these guys are just like they have no money and they're living in like an apartment with like three other like fallen members. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas like at least Trevor Hurst has like, didn't he have a solo career as well as his nursing? So he has like, you know, I haven't seen any of his solo stuff. He he did did do a side project. Hold the phone here. Have you heard any solo stuff by him? No. But I, for some reason, I thought he did. He struck me as the type of guy that would want to go out solo. All right. I read this Wikipedia page over pretty well. Uh, band members focused <laughs> on other from Wikipedia. No, I got it from a bunch of different sources. Just okay. Wikipedia was one of them. All right. And it's the quickest place to get information. Uh, he, w- he worked on a, a new band alongside former collective soul guitarist Ross Childress called Early Moses. However, due to a legal dispute, uh, they changed it to Hearst. So that's probably what you're thinking of. And I have not heard any of the solo project Hearst or the Econoline Crush Collective Soul Hybrid. Econoline Soul. But either way. Collective Crush sounds way better. What's that? Collective Crush, I think, sounds better than Econoline Soul. Sounds like a, uh, a reject from a vending machine. <laughs> Collective Crush? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, Colin Soul sounds like a movie about a van that kills people. Collective Crush sounds like a, a, a knockoff communist drink that they had in Russia. It's like, we, we do not have Grape Crush. We have Collective <laughs> Crush. <laughs> Um, well, yeah. I guess, I guess, go ahead. Uh, I got nothing. <laughs> well, I guess that, yeah, that's how we'll end every show. I got nothing. <laughs> no, I mean, it's a, it, was a, it was a good little deep dive you did there, Sweaty Teddy. Well, I'm going to have to get back to the drawing board next week because we are going to go to uh, the man who is considered to be the grandfather of Canadian hip-hop. Yes, American people. Canadian hip-hop was a thing before Drake. And you're going to find <laughs> that out way before Drake. Next week, when on Canada FM, we profile Maestro Fresh West, later known as just Maestro. We'll see you then. And we're not talking about Bob Cobb. <laughs> the new one guy! Bob Cobb! Bob Cobb! Maestro! Oh, I missed the Maestro! <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening to another scintillating episode of Canada FM. Hey, remember, we're on Instagram. You can follow us at Canada FM on Instagram or us individually as hosts. You got Brian D. Last and the Ted Jessup. Uh, Also, send us an email at CanadaFMPod at gmail.com. Through all these social media and email elements, you can give us an idea of future episodes. Maybe if you got a good idea, find out how we're doing, or, uh, you know, ask personal questions, this, that, and the other. Thanks!